Hello, and welcome to the Irish Left Archive podcast. In this episode, we'll be talking to Dr. Jack McGinley. Jack is the principal of Umuskin Press, a not-for-profit publishing house focusing particularly on labour and trade union history. He's been active in the trade union movement since joining the Workers' Union of Ireland in the 1970s, which later formed part of SIPTU. Among other roles, he was on the National Executive Council of SIPTU for several years, and as active in the SIPTU Cuba Solidarity Campaign. We discussed Jack's political background and involvement in trade unionism, his participation in the Divorce Action Group campaign and Cuba Solidarity, and his work with Omiskin Press and how the publisher has developed. You can find out more about Omiskin Press on their website at omiskinpress.wordpress.com, including the recently published fourth volume of their Left Lives in 20th Century Ireland series, which is a collection of ten essays on leading women in Ireland, edited by Mags O'Brien. You'll find the Irish Left Archive collection of political documents at leftarchive.ie. We welcome your feedback, and if you'd like to get in touch, you can do so via the website by emailing us at contact at leftarchive.ie or find us on Twitter at IE Left Archive. Thanks again to Jack for talking to us for this episode, and thank you for listening. First, uh, Jack, thank you very much for coming on and talking to us. Um, to start with, maybe you could tell us a bit about your first political experiences and how you became interested in politically? Well, I suppose my first political experience was coming home from school uh, in the CBS Western Row and being given a copy book by my mother to sit at the kitchen table and listen to the wireless with the results of the general election. And generally speaking, the first real results were coming in at three o'clock in the afternoon. And I did that all the way through till six or seven o'clock in the evening. And uh, w- once that time had passed, my father and uh, an aunt uh, took it over. So they, they, they had copy books laid out with all, the, uh, with all the constituencies. And you do first counts, transfers, who was elected. And then um, they had them done in such a way that once a constituency was over, they, they tear it out and put it somewhere else so as they would have all that information. So that was my first real um, entry into politics. Uh, My father was staunch Fianna Fáil. My mother was strong Fianna Gael. They were both from County Donegal. Uh, Donegal had been at one stage a six-seater for the whole county. Mm -hmm. Um, My mother's brother, John P, was a a strong supporter of Fianna Gael in, in South Donegal. Uh, and all of my father's family would have been uh, Fianna Fáil and would have had an association with the Republican movement. Hmm. Uh, so obviously, uh, Neil Blaney and his father uh, would have been revered in, in, in North Donegal and w- w- would, would have been an internal sort of hero. Hmm. So that, that would have been my, my, my first um, engagement with it. The second was really with... Uh, my colleagues uh, in, in Western Row, uh, in, in the primary school uh, in the 60s, going into the 70s, uh, the period around uh, Lynch, Hawaii, the arms trial, uh, the bombing of, I mean, so there's a, there's a guy who, who I was with yesterday, actually, uh, Declan Hayes, who came into the classroom in 1966 with his bag full of uh, detritus from Liberty Hall or from uh, the pillar, oh. and he says, "Here, put my books in your in your bench, Jack. 
I'm going back for more. And I said, well, get me a big bit. So he did, in fairness. He, he, he came back four or five times to the back full uh, of, 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 of Nelson's pillar. Wow. And the funny thing about that was uh, my father worked in Gill's bookshop in O'Connell Street. Mm. And one of his duties was to put, put out the Irish flag in the morning and take it, take it out when the shop was closing. And on St. Patrick's Day, and that the, uh, the papal flag and the uh, uh, tricolour were flown. So from, from that window, you could see the pillar. Yeah. And of course, Eddie Balaam, the, the famous Shamrock Rovers footballer, his father was the man who, who guarded the steps and took the sixpence or the threepence from people uh, in, in, in the pillar in those days. So uh, we had a lot of heated arguments about politics and um, Declan Hayes who was um, always one for student controversy was um, a student of TACA which was the mm. internal uh, funding mechanism for Benefall so all of that but I, I would have known people who were uh, around the Labour Party in Dublin South East uh, in Ratmine so I would have seen their literature and, and I, I would have known uh, a young Rory Quinn and uh, a young Mary Robinson and people like that uh, who are active in the constituency. So um, I, I, I sort of veered in that direction. And obviously then when I left um, school and, and went to work, uh, particularly in Trinity College in uh, 1974, I became a member of the Workers' Union in Ireland in 1975 and with it a member of the Labour Party because uh, it, it was the political extension of um, of the Irish transport and the Workers' Union of Ireland. Mm. So funnily, uh, my only involvement with the Irish transport was having my father's badge. But uh, the other political thing, which was in relation to um, trade unionism, was my father was locked out during the printer strike mm. uh, in the mid-1960s. And I always regarded my father as a very hard worker. A friend of his got him a job for the duration of the strike, which went on for about 14 weeks, mm. uh, work, working on a building site, uh, mainly driving the van, etc. But I'd see that man uh, in his 40s, mid-40s, coming home in the evening. Now, not, not shy of doing a, a hard day's work, but totally uh, knackered, you know, uh, just to help physical. Because... It was a uh, construction in those days was a young man's game, mm. and and to be at it, you know, in your mid forties and lugging stuff around. And he said, "I hope this strike ends, you know, soon." But of course, it dragged on and dragged on. But that 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 would have been part of my early political formation. Mm. And you joined, you joined the WIFWI in Trinity. In Trinity in seventy five, yes, I became active. Uh, in around 77, 78. Yeah. And uh, in 1980, there was an issue. Um, we were heading to France on the ferry on the 1st of August, 1980. And there was an mm. issue about, um, we, we were all full stamp, class A stamp. And a, 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 a deciding officer in the Department of Social Welfare had determined that we should be class D. Mm. This was a move by the government to, to cut the amount of employers' PRSI contribution that they had to make. Uh, now, the issue for us was the loss of the all-age pension or the loss of some residual rights. Mm. So when I retired 
after 45 years, three months and seven and days in Trinity College. Yeah, I only yeah. get 20% of the old age pension because my, my A stamps stopped in 1980 and I went oh, on a D stamp. Uh, now, I'm not complaining because the, uh, the pension scheme in Trinity College uh, was quite, quite a good scheme. Mm. Uh, and, and, and I have quite, I mean, to say the pension I have now after, after 45 years uh, would be the equivalent of some people's uh, weekly wage, you know. Yeah. So I, yeah. I, I'm not complaining. Yeah. But, but I'm still... a firm advocate in relation to uh, pensionability. Yeah. Uh, and, and one of my criticisms of this country, like David Cameron brought in uh, self enrollment for pensions while mm. he was in government. And uh, I was at an event in Crow Park in 2010 when Seamus Brennan was the relevant minister. And he said he would have such a scheme in place within a year. And here we are in 2021 and we've deferred it uh, because of the pandemic. And the reality is we're just building up problems. And the reality is that there will be loads of people who will never join the pension scheme because the lobby on the employer side don't want to pay that as an extra employment cost. Yeah. And this is, this, this is part of the issue with the gig economy and with uh, treating younger people in particular or people yeah. who don't have the necessary education or skill. Um, and and that's, that, 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 that's a long-term issue. Yeah. So I, I'm involved in the SIP2 campaign to stop 67, mm. uh, which is to make sure that people get their old age pension at 66 and mm. that the age never go up. Mm. Uh, and I, I think in any, I mean to say, there were rows about this in France when they tried to move away from 60. Yeah. So why shouldn't there be rows, rows about it? And I think, you know, uh, one of the things I say about Sinn Féin, um, it may have been an election gimmick, but they've stuck with it. Mm. And I think the heat is going to come on now. When, when, when the report of the um, Retirement um, Commission uh, sees the light of the day in the next few weeks, I think a lot of pressure is going to come on Fianna Fáil and the Green Party to stick to the promises that they made. I'm not expecting Varadkar because Varadkar always said that he wasn't in favour of it. Hmm. Uh, I spoke to Al Murphy a couple of times uh, because he was in this constituency at the time about hmm. it and he said no, the Taoiseach of the day wasn't returning. But but that, that's where we are. But as as the... Uh, the president of the Dublin District Council of SIGTO, I'm still, um, myself and Des Derwin are still adamant that this, this is a right. And I, I think it'll be an, uh, an election issue in three years' yeah. time. Yeah, can well believe it. It's, 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 too, it's too important for people that when they hit 65 that they're not left high and dry or forced to work for another two or three years. Obviously, people, some people want to work that little bit longer. That's a different th situation. But this idea that has to be... Uh, in an in an inexorable move forward to another two three and you know seventeen. Well, I I, I haven't made many friends because I've called people who have worked particularly in the pub public service, but also mm. in private sector employment, mm. who have forty or forty five years uh, behind them. Mm. I I I I've, I've typed them as being greedy because what chance have young people got? You know, uh, people speak about uh, looking after young people all the time, but what chance do they get of getting their first um, place on the ladder? Yeah. If, uh, like, I'm, I'm 67 and a half now, 
Uh, I, I, I could have stayed on until I was 70 uh, if, if I had pulled certain switches. But why yeah. would I? Yeah. I mean, say, yeah. three score and ten used to be the thing about, you know, your life. I, my father was in his 84th year when he died. And mm. like you said, he was a diabetic. I, I'm mm. not to replicate that with a few added years. Uh, yeah. But I want to enjoy, having done all those years uh, in employment, um, I, I want to see young people um, mm. in, in employment enjoying the fruits that, that I enjoy yeah. uh, as a paid worker, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sorry, I, should, I meant to ask you, what did you do in TCD? I, I was in the library. I've always ah. been around books. Yeah. Sorry, do you think that came from your father? Because you're saying he worked, I think, in Gills. It, it it would have come from my father and my mother because we were always uh on, on I live we lived in a garden flat in, in Lance Road and Mines mm. and um on both sides of the, the fire in the front room there were mm. small bookshelves that my father had built. So yeah. there would have been about sixty or ninety books on both sides. So there, there were always books in the house and we yeah. always had plenty of newspapers in that. So yeah. I, I think we were always well read. I suppose yeah. um, I had a couple of summer jobs in Guilds. So uh, when, when I when I got my leaving in seventy uh, one, well actually the, the, we we finished the leaving that year on a Saturday because mm. there was a reset of an exam because in one of the posh schools somebody had stolen the exam paper the night before and and had uh, told people about it. So we had to go in on a Saturday. So the wow. following Monday I started working Guilds. Yeah. Uh, in, in a summer job. And when mm. I got my leaving cert results, um, the director in the area I was working in said, would you consider a full-time? I said, well, mm. if you're prepared to make me permanent, I'd certainly take the job. How mm. long I'll stay now? I said, I'm not making any promises. Mm. But that was, that, was, that, was, that was the way it was. And in, in the mid-70s then, I had... Um, applied for jobs in uh, Dublin City Council as it is now Dublin Corporation and Trinity College mm. and I got the job in Trinity and I took it and the, the man says uh, if if some of the management there knew how <laughs> anachronistic uh, and, and how turbulent that, that relation was going to be over the next 45 years some of them might have regretted but having said, having said that uh, a lot of the management were good friends of mine over the years. I mean, mm. say, I was on the board of the college. I, I chaired college committees. So um, I had a good working relationship with a lot of people and, and some of the provinces. Yeah. Actually, that sounds, well, that sounds, yeah, very positive. You're saying as well in your um, WI, FWI branch, there were quite a number of, uh, you said it was a very energetic branch as well. Yeah, it, 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 had, it had people from... Um, Fine, Fine Gael, uh Doyle Secretaries, uh, members of the Labour Party, mm. uh, members of Fianna Fáil, uh, RTE, um, then there were the universities, so UCD, TCD, uh, yeah. at the time, uh, NIHE Dublin, NCAD, Bordishki mm. Wara, Irish Shipping. So you had mm. something like uh, 50 employments. And, and the FOSS branch. Oh, right, yeah. FOSS. Uh, our first section was in the number 15 branch of the Workers' Union of Ireland until they got their own branch and their own okay. official. Wow. So 
And of course, there were all political views there. So you had um, Fine Fáil, Fine Gael, Labour, the Workers' Party, uh, Sinn Féin. Mm. And of course, you had all the various campaigns then. And uh, the, the very famous uh, edict in relation to coverage of Sinn Féin uh, from Conor Cruz O'Brien when he was in the Post yeah. Which created a very, very, um, I mean to say, the first Workers' Union of Ireland conference I went to was in Cork in 1980. Mm. And I was the 24th substitute on the delegation. And I got to go because a significant number of people were either proposed or seconded by somebody who was out of benefit. Really? The funny thing about it was when you go into a Workers' Union of Ireland AGM, there was somebody from the cash office there with the general ledger, and you could check to see if you were in benefit or not. But of course, um, on, on this particular year, uh, the um, the AGM was held in, in Granby Place uh, mm. in a hall owned by the uh, Dominicans. Mm. And there was an overflow. There were nearly 500 people at the meeting, right? And of course, 70% of them arrived at the last minute, having been in the Granby Bar. And then didn't bother checking to see if they were in benefit or out of benefit. And a few weeks later, when the delegation conference, so I got to go to that conference. But, uh, they were they were fiery events. But mm. when when you think of the the type of trade unions that you are mixing with there, like we're talking about um, uh, some of the Larkins, like Dennis Larkin was general secretary. Paddy right. Paddy Cardiff was on his way to becoming general secretary. Yeah. Billy Atley became Deputy General Secretary, then General Secretary. Mm. And then you had a lot of young braves like Pat Brady, who was a member of the Workers' Party and That's very, right, very yeah. close to a few of the TDs, became mm. General Secretary of the uh, Victuallers. Mm. Uh, subsequently, uh, Bernard Brown, who famously became the General Secretary of the uh, Labour Party, only to lose it because of an interview with Maureen de Burke in the Sunday Tribune. And there were a lot, there were lots of young Turks who came, uh, a mixture of people who went. A young Bertie Hearn was an official in the Workers' Union of Ireland. Yeah. Uh, in, in the days when he was studying bookkeeping. Before he was a socialist. Uh, Bertie the socialist, <laughs> yes. And, um, but there were all, all of those. And of course, then you had the likes of John Carmichael and Padraigini Murakou. Mm. And you had the amalgamation of the Workers' Union of Ireland with the Irish Women Workers' Union. And then you had the Federation of Rural Workers uh, uh, merging with the Workers' Union of Ireland. Mm. Uh, and there was a strong, uh, a lot of these amalgamations were very obvious because they were all parts of the Labour Party and of rural and female Ireland that had, mm. a, ha, had, had their own. And the funny thing is, if, if you read um, Mags O'Brien's essay on Fadigan in Morocco, mm. the, the, the breaking, uh, the fissure in relation to the Irish Women Workers Union was the success of the Mary Murphy and others versus Telecom Erden in relation to pay equality with men. Mm. And because of that success, all of a sudden there was all this new legislation and there was all this uh, work that had to be done yeah. And the fees that the members in the Irish Women Workers Union were paying and the Federation of Rural Workers were such that it couldn't sustain. And you needed to have a bigger um, a bigger organisation with deeper pockets. Yeah. 
The Federation of Rural Workers uh, General Secretary was a guy called Paddy Murphy. It uh, died in the world, uh, and I don't use this term in an objectionable fashion, but uh, died in the world, Mark Savage, who nice. um, would, would teach you everything there was to know about the master and servant pension schemes, yeah. which, which were there. I mean, so it was the difference between clerical workers and people who worked with, with their hands. Yeah. But Paddy was a man who made sure that over time those schemes were amalgamated. So there was one pension scheme in every employment. Right. Uh, and, and, and that was an important contribution mm. and, and a very difficult man to argue against because he had so, so much knowledge. Yeah. And the likes of Atlee would defer to Murphy once, once, once they had been subsumed in uh, on pension matters because it was an encyclopedia of knowledge yeah. walking around. Yeah. And I, mean, I always found him a nice man, even though at, at times uh, he and I uh, were on different sides because uh, I was a young Turk and I wanted everything to happen yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> You didn't join the Labour Party during this phase at all. I mean, no. that was that was much later. Um, yeah. Your your activism, in a sense, seems to have moved towards, um, like in the eighties. I mean, where would you say your activism was in the eighties? In, in the eighties, most it of was my union. activism was in the GAA. I, oh. I yes, I, I I was playing football with Clannagale till I was twenty. I had mm. an accident, so in in the mid seventies. I, I retired as a player. I, I still played a bit of junior football and junior hurling, mm. but I became involved in officialdom. Mm. I became uh, the youth officer for the Dublin County Board for three years, right. and I was the vice chairman of the county board for a year. Right. Uh, so uh, I, I, I've always found um, that the word development is a word that I, I treat uh, as that. Uh, if you're in an organisation, there's a, a fixed time that you can do something worthwhile. Mm. And when that fixed time is over, it's time to move aside. Now you can stay in the organization, but yeah. you have to let yeah. somebody else develop it on from there. Yeah. So that's yeah. why even in, in places like say the Irish Labour History Society, where I've been president twice, mm. I did a four year term and I did a six year term. You have mm. to let new blood in. Um, yeah. Or otherwise it 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 will just so the 80s were, were about the GAA. Um, mm. A lot of uh, involvement in, in the work of Union of Ireland. Mm. Uh, I would have been involved in individual campaigns. It would have been pro-Europe. Mm. Uh, Rory Quinn would have been elected as a TD at that stage. So I, I would have been, I mean, say I would have been out. Uh, I was never a great canvasser, but I, mm. I never had a difficulty leafleting mm. uh, and, and doing that sort of stuff. Would have been on a lot of marches uh, and, and and stuff, and then uh, from 1980 onwards, I started going to away uh, matches for Ireland. Yeah. Just away match I I was in Holland and uh, Belgium and those places in in the in the mid 80s, and I was at the 88 Euros, the 90 World Cup, the 94 World Cup. Wow. Um, the 2002 World Cup, the 2000 uh, Euros, even though Ireland weren't in them, in yeah. uh, Belgium and Holland, and um, the 2006 World Cup in Frankfurt, right. and uh, the Euros in 2012 and 2016. And uh, in, in, in games where 
I, I'd always try and go to say an away game against City and Spain and uh, yeah. stuff like that. So I, I, I was getting to see the world at the same time. Brilliant and culture and like, like it's oh, yeah, interesting to use the term activism for that because I think it's very important on the left. You know, I think I think Angus would agree as well. Like this sort of like there's a very artificial distinction sometimes made between political activity and then broader community or cultural including sporting activity and so on and so forth. They're all part and parcel of the same. So so then as you, sh- you shift from the 80s into the 90s, um, you became more involved in campaigns, or would that be incorrect? No, I did get involved in campaigns, but I, I was also, I mean, to say, uh, SIP2 started on the 1st of January uh, 1990, and it was mm. at a time when I was getting more and more involved in SIP2. And um, in I, I missed out on on the very first uh, the transitional Dublin Regional Committee of SIP2. Mm. Uh, I, I was a candidate, but I, I, I wasn't. I was an electoral novice. Uh, but uh, in the mid nineteen nineties, I, I was elected onto the Dublin District Council and uh, the Dublin Regional um, Body, and I uh, the number one for the, for the public sector. And later on, the number one and number two, which was the private sector merge, I, I was president of that for 10 years. Right. So obviously, in terms of uh, issues in the public and private sector, I, I would have been involved. I would have been traveling to a lot of meetings. I mean, so mm. there was a lot of stuff around the health sector, mm. a lot of stuff around the local authorities. Uh, then there was issues about um, dustbins, you know, privatization. Privatization was a big issue. Uh, then there was stuff around contracting, uh, you know, contracting out. And then um, in the UK, some of the, the things that were contracted out um, decided to contract back in again uh, and, and the, the wheel turned. Mm. So there would have been all of those. And then um, I became interested in getting a seat on the CIPTO National Executive Council. So I was on that for 12 years, two six-year terms, and I would have been one of the leading lights uh, towards the end of my first term and into the whole of my second term. So all, all of that would have put you uh, on ICTU delegations going to the ICTU biennial delegate conference, yeah. uh, the SIP2 delegate conference, some of the regional conferences. So you could be away six or eight weekends a year in, in terms yeah. of that sort of stuff. Uh, Labour Party stuff like the Tom Johnson Summer School and, mm. and, and stuff like this. Uh, and then I started getting involved in the, um, the CIP2 Global Solidarity and the uh, CIP2 Solidarity with Cuba. Mm. So in uh, all, all of those things. And, and I was involved in stuff like uh, Marxist with the anti-apartheid movement uh, over uh, South Africa, the Dunstars mm. dispute. Mm. Uh, a few of the big disputes in 83 there was a strike in Trinity for two weeks uh, and uh, I've, I've written a piece on that which I hope is going to be in next year's Sayer, the 83 oh. dispute um, which was a very very interesting because it, it, it brought there were there were three branches in Trinity uh, the mm. number one branch which was weekly paid the number eight branch which was weekly paid and the number 15 branch which was salaried now, at that time, we had only 100 people in, in, in the number 15 branch. There are now 700 members of SIP2. Wow. 
in TCD. And um, I would say I spent five years between 2012 and 2017 perfecting our performance in terms of recruitment and getting people, getting to people, yeah. but more importantly, getting good quality representatives, education and training for the yeah. reps and trying to weed out people who are just in it for themselves, the Mayfainers, mm-hmm. uh, who would get elected year after year and never spoke about their members yeah. or never reported back to their members. So it was one thing that uh, myself and the trots had in common, and we didn't have much in common, mm. was this thing about if, if, if you're given an electoral position, that you have to go back to the rank and file every so often and let them know what was going on. Yeah. Uh, the difference between us was I never saw any real substance in passing a motion that was never going to be enacted yeah. uh, because it was just futile. I mean, say, I always thought we're far better. And I, I, I'm now involved in standing artist committees in ICTU, mm. and I have been for a number of years in SIPTU. I always mm. thought it was far better off of compositing three or four motions on the same thing and having the debate on a single motion mm. rather than having four different debates on what was essentially different parts of the same whole. You also got involved in the divorce action group as well, and in yes. and in the and, and in campaigning around DAG and about div- uh, provision of divorce in the in the Irish constitution. Well, not just in the constitution, but legally. How did that come about? Or- well, I suppose uh, in eighty seven, I I had applied for a place in the National College of Industrial Relations, mm. and as it happened, uh, I mean to say they, they were looking to the course director was a guy called Michael Michael Barry. A mm. former merchant seaman, uh, a very, very wise guy. Mm. Um, he, he taught us sociology and um, he, he, he was very vested in making sure that the class mix would be a, a mix of management and trade union mm. uh, and young and old and male mm. and female. And uh, he, had, he had set a stall on getting 60 people in for this Abinizio degree. Right. BA industrial relations and personal management mm. and I was accepted after uh, an interview mm. and a couple of weeks before the class which is start in September my mother died suddenly on the last okay. day she, she came she came home from holidays on a Sunday night and uh, I spoke to her for a few minutes on my way out and I said mm. I'd have a chat with her the following evening and I got mm. a phone call in the afternoon of the Monday uh, to say that she'd she'd been brought by ambulance to um, the maid hospital. And when I That's got there, incredible. she was dead. Yeah. So, and, and at the same time, I was in a competition uh, to join the staff of the European Union in Brussels. Mm. So uh, when the funeral was over, I sat down with my father and I said, well, I'm not going to be able to do both of these things. And he said, well, he says, I'd prefer if you, if you ditch the Brussels thing for the moment. I said, mm-hmm. fine. I said, what about the NCIR? He says, well, he said, look, you want to do this. He says, mm-hmm. it's five years. Will you stick five years? I said, well, I'm going to give the first year a go. So I think in that five years, I learned more about myself, more about the world, and more about campaigning, and more about the other side's arguments. I mean to say, there were a lot of people on the management side 
who were just managers and they, they didn't care about what was said. But there were a number of people who were very, very astute and who knew that the workplace of the future needed a coalition between managers and staff. Uh, new forms of work was becoming an idea. Mm. Uh, what, what I think is now described as the third industrial revolution. Yeah. So I, I would say that that's what wakened me. Obviously, while I was in the NCIR, I started going out with mags. That mm. led me on to the divorce situation and led us on to uh, subsequently uh, living together and getting married once you can mm. get a divorce. Uh, so all of that happened. And obviously, Mags was a member of the Labour Party at that time. So uh, that would have um, that, that would have come into play uh, yeah. in terms of activism, etc. Mm. So I think it would have been a fusion of the Labour Party, uh, the NCIR, um, and in the early 90s, I became a member of the Irish Labour History Society at, at John P. Nice. Swift. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Asking. And I became a committee member very, very quickly and then became an officer. So all of those things uh, came to play, you know, one after the other, you know. Did, did, did you feel with the divorce issue? And I mean, this is almost like as, a, as an aside, but did you feel by 91, 92, 93 that it was within three or four years of being attainable? Or did you feel that it was something that was another decade out I mean, I'm very, you know, because thinking back in on the it, early, so, yeah. in the early nineties, uh, the polls were going in the right direction, but yeah. it was difficult. Uh, some of the attitudes hadn't changed, yeah. And actually, some of the attitudes hardened, and people began to realise that this was not going to be as easy as the last time. Yeah. And I remember saying to Mags on a couple of occasions that. The sustainability of this there was a finite point at, at, at which they were going to lose members because it was going on for so long. Yeah. But then uh, the one thing that it couldn't sustain was being beaten a second time. And I, I'm, I'm still of the opinion that one of the most important things in that was John Bruton's uh, radio interview on the Sunday before, before the thing saying that this this was an idea whose time had come, regardless mm. of what civil society or the Catholic Church or all the naysayers, because there were all these people who were mm. actually admitting that even though they were living in the same house as their wife or their husband, mm. that they weren't a couple anymore. And, and some of the stories in relation to all of that, uh, particularly in relation to farms and, 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 so, and wealth, yeah. uh, were really horrific. Terrible. Unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. So, and did you feel, so, So, like I was always struck by how tight the margin was. I It was staggeringly tight in retrospect when you think about it. But I, I mean, it did seem to have, it did seem in well, a way like if it had been lost, as you say, it'd be a generational thing before it was hit again. You know, I think, yeah. My, 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 my memory of the count was we were out in the RDS and we had a little, mm. uh, radio plugged in and again I was doing the stats and um, there was a there was uh, there were eight constituencies still still to report and on the trend it was going to be carried by that much and then one of the Dublin constituencies didn't have the um, 
number in favour in in the same significance as some of the others. Now, we, we would have made projections based on obviously Dublin Bay South, which is now Dublin South East, done literally wrapped down a couple of those. We're all going to go, uh, you know, 60 40. Yeah. Uh, and a couple on the north side were going to go 52 48, etc. So yeah. they were all factored in. But when this one, this was a blip now, and all of a sudden I said to Max, Max, this is not over. I said, yeah. the next three results that come in. And luckily, one of the ones that came in was a country one that, that, that went. So we were going out to RTA. Mags was being interviewed. And I said to you, your man had one of these pirate channels on. I said, can you put the RTA news on, please? I said, because yeah. uh, she needs to be right up to the minute. He said, yeah, sure, no problem, you know. And we went out in the taxi anyway. And I'm still scribbling on my notebook. And mm. uh, we go into the studio and Mags is getting her makeup on. She says, uh, Two still to go, but um, I said, now don't be bullish about this. I said, yeah. say that uh, in, in, in your view, it looks like it will be carried uh, by a very small margin. But given how long it's been an issue, uh, and you will remember that the weather on the East Coast that day was beautiful, which, yeah. which helped yeah. the turnout. And it was miserable in the West of Ireland. And there are a lot of country people who said, had they realised not coming out uh, would, would bring in divorce, that they, 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 they would have taken the weapon. But right. that's history. Yeah. Do you think there's any chance, and again, this is slightly as an aside, do you think there's ever any chance of any pushback on divorce? Or do you think that that, that ship has sailed? Now, I, I, I think the divorce argument is settled because I think uh, in, in the modern era, the... I think the divorce thing became settled when you got women who had children. Uh, women were far more persuadable in this argument because mm. you had a lot of women who were in difficult relationships, some yeah. of them quite aggressive relationships. Yeah. You had a significant number of people going into uh, battered wives' homes or battered, mm. battered women's homes and all this. So um, now... In another generation, it may be different. Yeah, I, yeah. I doubt yeah. it, though. I doubt it on the divorce thing. I've been involved recently in a number of um, letters to Simon Coveney uh, on right. the Cuban issue in relation yeah. to uh, three different issues, uh, one of which is obviously Ireland have successive, in successive years always voted um, to do away with the economic boycott of Cuba. Yeah. Uh, and the USA and Israel just, just won't wear it. Yeah. Um, the second thing is that it's practically impossible, uh, say, for CIP to solidarity with Cuba Forum to send money directly to Cuba. Uh, nice. we, we, if we want to send aid to Cuba, we have to do it via Medi-Cuba in Switzerland. Yeah. And uh, now they're, they, they've been over here. We've vetted them. Uh, they've come to meet trade unions in the UK and Ireland. Yeah. So we do it that way. But uh, because the Irish banks have all their back office stuff done out of the USA, they're mm. forbidden. Okay. So you can't, you can't open an account in Ireland with the word Cuba in it. So the CIP2 Solidarity with Cuba Forum bank account is the CIP2 Solidarity Forum. Mm. And other people have had to do the same. You know, the uh, 
XXX CSFI Mediterranean account or the CSFI uh, South America account. That's that's to get around that. The third, but more more generally worrying uh, issue uh, that we've been campaigning on hmm. is uh, the EU um, person um, Joseph Burrell, who has um, within his portfolio. Uh, relations between the EU and Cuba has mm. been trying to get this uh, agreement, trade trade and cultural agreement between Cuba and the EU passed for a number of years. And Lithuania mm. are the only country now who haven't signed it. And I, I gather from third parties that that's to do with their relationship as a Baltic state with, with Russia because uh, they, they have fears. And obviously Russia and the uh, Soviet Union had, had good diplomatic relations with Cuba. Hmm. But uh, laterally, there have been elements in the European People's Party and in Hungary and Poland and the Baltic states who have been raising issues about Cuba in the European Parliament. And unfortunately, it's a bit of a digression because it, it actually wastes time. Do you think there's any resolution on the Cuban side of things? I mean, do you think there's any way around this to I, I, mitigate um, it? Uh, my, my view on this is that, um, I mean, so we, we had a protest on Rosie Hackett Bridge the day before the UN General Assembly. Mm. Uh, our message was to Joe Biden, you know, do it now, do it now. Mm. Uh, hopefully the, the Democrats will have a good midterm election so as they won't be worrying about what goes on in mm. uh, the East, the Lower East Coast states and yeah. that they will actually do something. Um, all we were really looking for, uh, certainly from the Citizens Solidarity with Cuba Forum uh, view, mm. was that we would get Biden to relax some of what Trump did and mm. bring us back to where um, Barack Obama had gone. Mm. Now, uh, one one of the Cuban five was at Liberty Hall in 2017, and, and I've met him since in Havana in 2019. Mm. And uh, he said that uh, he, he, the Cuban people welcomed what Obama had done. But he said he would have to say that it was too little and too late, that he should have done it in his first term and he should have been rolling it out. So it was all of the stuff and all the damage that's been done. Mm. Now, there are, there are, I mean to say, the reports I'm getting, and I've been on a few, um, of these video calls to uh, Havana, mm. there is no doubt that there are uh, foods, foods shortages. There is no doubt that the um, currency changed between the two currencies into a single currency, which had been delayed for a significant amount of time. Mm. Uh, but it, it, it became one of these things which had to be done sometime. Mm. And doing it in the middle of a pandemic probably wasn't the optimum thing. But I think at the end of the day, it was the wisest thing because they had to, to grasp the metal. Yeah. Uh, I think they, the Cuban government and the, the medics are to be um, admired for actually uh, rolling out two different vaccines mm. of their own mm. and for sharing them with uh, Venezuela and Nicaragua and countries like that. And I also think that um, in terms of um, 
the Cuban medical system, uh, it, 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 it serves its people well. And I think the people on the Henry Reeves Medical Brigade who've been in Haiti recently and who've been all around the world helping other people uh, in, 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 in their needy times in terms of hurricanes and volcanoes and all this stuff are to be commended on the work. And, and I can't understand why, um, well, I do understand because an awful lot of the people uh, who raise these issues are people of a very capitalist, uh, anti-revolutionary bent. And I, I, I've always been of the view, I meant to say, I, I, I'm somebody who, who would have admired Che Guevara and uh, Fidel and Raul Castro. Mm. And when, when we were in um, at the May Day um, event in Havana in 2019, it was great to see Raul Castro, like, there were 200 people in, in a compound who were international trade unionists. So we were there from South Africa, Australia, the UK, 50 from the USA, you know. And looking up at Raul Castro and the current president, uh, giving their salute uh, to something, a parade that started at 7 o'clock in the morning, which meant we had to leave our hotel at half past four in the morning and went on for two and a half hours. And then the celebration that the Cuban Trade Union Confederation uh, did for their guests all afternoon so, so we could mix with, mix with each other and have mm. chats and, and take photographs and, and make contacts with people in other solidarity organizations. And that's, that's why people get involved in global solidarity, to try and help the people in Palestine and people in uh, Haiti. There's a great sort of fraternity between solidarity organizations, north and south. How, how have you had time, one asks oneself, like with both um, the watchword press in the mid-noughties and then obviously Umiskin subsequent to that, how have you had time to devote to that as well, given everything else that you're involved in? I mean, you know, taking on a publishing um, approach seems to be you know, hugely labour intensive, quite apart from everything else. And yet, like you've now been involved in two uh, publishing presses in a sense, or one imprint and then a press, yeah. I guess. Well, um, Watchword was a, uh, a committee which I chaired and mm. uh, I, I, I had one volume published uh, as part of that. Uh, Umuskin, uh it's essentially myself and mm. a couple of uh, comrades who come in to edit uh, stuff. Mm. Uh, and obviously, since since I retired, I've had a lot more um, time and work. Um, when I was working, most of the uh, watchword and almost kind of stuff was done uh, late at night and at weekends. Yeah. Uh, whereas now, uh, when, when I switch on my computer at quarter past nine in the morning, uh, and answer emails, uh, generally speaking, till one o'clock. I'm working on Umuskin stuff or on SIP2 stuff or on Cuban stuff. And in the afternoon from two until about half four, I'm the same. Yeah. Uh, I generally don't work Fridays. And, uh, Helen, my wife, um, decided so we try and do things. We try and have a long weekend as far as possible. Yeah. But yeah. having said that, uh, I mean, say life is life. Sometimes something comes up on a, 
a Wednesday or a Thursday mm. that needs doing on a Friday, Saturday or Sunday. So, uh, but I, I try and ration the time. Mm. Uh, and it's, it, it all depends on the number. Like, obviously, the last couple of years, we've been doing two publications a year. So you've been talking about March, April, May, and October, November, December. So it, 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 but I can remember times like I, I took six weeks off and in 2017, I decided I'd take a, a four week unpaid leave from Trinity uh, a couple of years before retirement. So I went to the Greek islands and I brought my laptop with me, the iPad, the mobile phone. Yeah. And uh, we were working on a um, Left Lives 2 at the time. And uh, I was up first thing in the morning, breakfast, then get on the Wi-Fi in the hotel where I was staying, do a couple of hours, send it to the printer or to the editors, uh, come back in the mid-afternoon, do a bit more. And I had three or four different time slots in the day. So two hours, two hours, an hour and an hour. And that that was the way. And I signed off on that book from um, Paros in Greece, you know. And, And the proofs came through to me while I was in Paros or Santorini. Uh, and uh, my, my only issue was, I, well, I was lucky, I, I brought a couple of memory sticks, mm. uh, find, find them somewhere locally where I could actually print them out. It was very hard to accurately proofread uh, on, 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 on a computer screen. You, yeah. you, you'll do about 90% of it, but when you're getting down to the final proofs and that, you really want to be catching as many of the errors as possible. Absolutely. You never catch them all. Yeah. You do your best. Like you've been doing two books a year, what are the criteria in a sense for you, Miskin? And actually, you should say about like the the the, the name of the press because I mean that's a that's an interesting story in itself. Yeah, well, Omiskin is a small part of the Kilcar townland in County Donegal, so it's where my my, my grandparents, great grandparents on on my father's side hailed from. Mm. So. Uh, Many of my times in the uh, 70s, 80s and 90s were um, traveling with my father to uh, funerals in Donegal and in London and Glasgow and, and, and other places. So obviously, almost can, uh, I mean, say uh, as a townland, it's, it, it's not a very big place. And funny, we, we were up in Donegal in August and myself and my brother uh, were looking at some, we have some um, fields up there that we're, we're thinking of building a house. And we were on the very top of it. And you have a great look down uh, over your uh, left-hand shoulder to Umskin. Yeah. So uh, when when the Dermot Sweeney book came along and when poor old Dermot died and, and when his colleagues decided he should be remembered and mm. Umskin was born, uh, I decided, well, what are we going to call it? And I said, well, Umskin is obvious. Almost compress, and that, that's where it came from. In terms of the criteria, well, it, it's very simple. Um, I, I got a manuscript in a couple of weeks ago, totally unsolicited, on um, the Molly Maguires. Mm. And um, I, I read the first chapter of it, and it's it certainly to my liking, but it, it's, not, it's not a sort of an era of history uh, that I know an awful lot about. So I asked Francis Devine's advice and he gave me the name of a a colleague who actually has an essay in one of the books that's been published in 2022. Mm. And um, we have um, 
we sent it to him and, and he's examining it. And uh, the guy who sent me the thing said I'd meet him in Belfast in October and hopefully we'll have a result back from that. Mm. But uh, generally speaking, um, and anything on sport, culture, mm. biography, uh, labour history, politics, mm. uh, would fall within what I regard as the remit of Umskin Press. Yeah. So we did a poetry book of poems by Francis Devine and uh, Watchword had done one uh, previously. So uh, th th that wasn't a difficult um, one. There's a book on TJ O'Connell, who was the second parliamentary leader of the Labour Party, which has been right. in abeyance for a period of time because of the COVID crisis, because uh, the idea was that that would be launched at the INTO uh, delegate mm. conference. So mm. I've, I've just got a word from the INTO that, that they're going to have a real conference next April. Right. So I've been right. I've been on to the author. I mean, say so the book is written. It's just a matter of uh, sending it back to her. Uh, it, it's been out to two people to check in terms of house style and stuff like mm. that. Uh, so that that should be going to the printers in February. And Francis Devine and a guy called uh, Lusky from um, Ulster, Northern Ireland. Mm. Uh, are, are, are doing a book on labour in rural Ireland uh, at the start of the 20th century. Mm. So there's a possibility of about 15 essays in that. Obviously, uh, Francis John Cunningham and a colleague in the University of Otago in um, New Zealand are working away on the 50th anniversary book for the Irish Labour History Society. Mm. Uh, there's a colleague working on a possible biography of Brendan Bean. Mm. And then uh, Francis will be talking to me. Francis is currently in um, Scotland because they just he's recently just done a, a book and a CD on um, one of the areas in Scotland. And it was been launched last uh, weekend uh, yeah. in the Queen's Chapel at Balmoral. Wow. How did that come? Yeah. Well, well uh, it came about by virtue of the fact that uh, Francis is involved in the Hope Singing Circle, which every year has a Burns Night in one of the hotels in Hope. Right. And a number of years ago, uh, one of the singers who came over brought with him this um, religious uh, Church of Scotland minister who, right. happens, to, who happens to be the Queen's uh, spiritual advisor uh, at the uh, church in Balmoral while she's in residence. Wow. So that's how Francis got involved in that. That's brilliant. One of the interesting things I think about uh, Omiskin is the, the sheer range of materials published so far. Um, you know, there's Irish Soviet Diplomatic and Friendship Relations, 1917 to 1991 by Michael Quinn. I think that was the very first book that I saw published by yourselves. And then you've got William Walker's 1870 to 1918, Belfast Labour Union Centenary Essays, and then Left Lives, obviously the Left Lives series. Um, it seems it's building up a history, a, a printed history in a sense of some very interesting aspects of the Irish left and of the trade union movement and so forth. And kind of doing it in a kind of 
you know, sort of like there's another one on Clus on Frank Klusky, which again a fascinating character, and Matt Merrigan. But it's doing it in a very sort of quiet, you know, quietish way. I mean, you were saying earlier, like for instance, that the pandemic really taught marketing of the publications the last year and a half, for instance. I mean, are you, you know, you'd be keen, I presume, to boost the profile of the press even further, if at all possible. I take it. Yeah, well, obviously, the um, generally speaking, uh, uh, it, it's it's an area that that needs a bit of work. Mm. Um, my wife Helen uh, looks after the website um, mm. piece, so um, there's there's that. I I've had a dilemma for a while because uh, obviously uh, I felt Dumbleskin can't go on forever and ever, uh, mm. and there was. A question of at what stage I would retire. Myself mm. and Francis Devine have had a couple of coffees over over the pandemic, um, talking mm. about such such things. I I thought at one stage that maybe at seventy it would be the time to go. Mm. But I I had a hallelujah moment um, during the pandemic, and I decided mm. that I would revise my thinking. Mm. Uh, I mean, say I'm the principal of Womanskin Press. Uh, mm. I'm going to form a new board. Uh, mm. which will have about six or eight people on it. And I'm going, uh, it, it, it will be some of the cadre that have been involved thus far, but I also yeah. want new blood. Yeah. And I'm going to be looking for somebody uh, who, who might be able to point us in the direction of some people who, uh, who give uh, funds to worthy causes. Mm. Uh, and I'm also going to try and see if we can get somebody on the technical side in terms of marketing, etc. Yeah. Uh, to to advise us. Now, I I I mean, say sometimes these things cost cost some money. I mean, say there are deliverables that you have to spend on uh, to get a book. Uh, at the end of the day, I I don't mind spending that money. Mm. Um, but I I would I would be and 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 in 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 certain instances, I mean to say. There, there are a couple of books which are in gestation, mm. where where there's actually uh, an organisation prepared to fund them. Mm. I mean to say, if you look at the uh, Peter Rigney pamphlet, uh, that, that was paid for by uh, Aaron Rodern, and the um, the Matty Merrigan uh, book was by and large uh, funded by the Amalgamated Transport General Workers Union at the yeah. time. Yeah, uh, and I, I have had a grant from SIPTU, which has um, kept me going uh, over mm. the last number of years, mm. and uh, I, I have to say I'm, I'm I'm quite happy about where where almost compress is um, mm. funding wise. I mean to say it's probably true to say that I I have enough money in the account to uh, deliver two and a half more books. Right. Uh, right. And depending on, on on the sales of of uh, left lives for. Mm. And and it's it's gone out the door at a, a fairly dramatic um, rate. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the one thing that sometimes catches you though is uh, you, you sell out very quickly, and you decide to reprint. Mm. And reprinting uh, is a very dangerous because I I have boxes of, of reprinted material downstairs. But having right. said that, uh, I got an order yesterday from that that, that Belfast shop. For ten hardback books, like um, that's that's and and not insignificant um, 
bonus firms can press. And, yeah. and I have been looking at the possibility of, of an alliance with one of the, um, the major uh, book suppliers uh, mm. in terms of saying if somebody would do, uh, I, I would like to try and get access to some of the independent bookshops, but they don't, they don't seem to have any sort of a federal link between them all. Mm. But it's something I have been looking at, and, and I will continue to, to give that some engagement. But there, there, there are definitely about two books out there, possibly three, uh, where the authors have um, assured me that there is a sponsor uh, for the sort of run that we do, 200 to 250 to 300, uh, depending on the pagination. You're involved in the Irish Labour History Society as well. Is there a crossover there at all, or or is is that even something that's possible in a sense? I was involved in some of the Irish Labour History Society publications as as president, mm. so mm. I, I would have been probably the main um, thrust behind uh, Volume Forty One, which mm. was the bumper edition for the uh, centen- the uh, centenary of nineteen sixteen, which mm. is is a great but again we, we produced a great product but we didn't market it particularly well right uh, I, I helped with the financing of the ilhs um trade union records book with francis divine and the late john smethurst did uh, i was involved with francis on the uh, republication of the workers union of ireland report which, which was um, propagated by Christy Ferguson and uh, Jim Larkin, young Jim Larkin, uh, mm. in, in the mid-50s. And I was involved in uh, Rainer Lysett's studies in labour history 15 and in Peter Ennis's studies in labour history 14 and in Francis Devine and Mike Schuker's book on the relationship between Leicestershire labour and Irish labour in relation to the uh, the supply to the Dublin um, unemployed and those out on strike during the lockout. And I'm working with Shay Cody on a thing he's doing at the moment on Tom Johnston. And I printed off 70 pages from Luke Denane on uh, a cork uh, lockout in 1911 so that's the weekend work so it's, it's a huge like it's a, i mean this is in a sense it's between the ilhs and between oh miskin there's it, it, a huge body of work which is being generated in terms of study research writing and output it's very great i mean for instance the last the last volume of your from oh miskin that i read was um brendan scott's the history of brendan scott by yeah great book john p swift john really p. fascinating and and uh a real character he he really was and but it's that sort of thing because i mean i wouldn't i don't come from the labor tradition myself but uh to learn about people like him who were positioned within it and who are so radical and uh you know and uh thoughtful really so i think this it's this interesting thing where you're kind of shining a light on things which hasn't been shone on before and it's kind of it's certainly providing i think a a new take on things well, one of the one of the reasons behind the Left Live series was we wanted to shine, which was originally designed to be icons of the left in 20th mm. century Ireland. Uh, but 
we didn't want to do any more on Markovich and Connolly and Larkin and, and people like, hmm. like those because they, they'd had plenty of press. Uh, we wanted to shine a light on, on people uh, that some people would know hmm. uh, and, and never really thought about their, uh, these people's lives, etc. I think that's particularly true of some of the lives in, in, in Left Lives 4, um, Pautagini Murakou, uh, the reworked um, piece on Evelyn Owens. Yeah. The very raw piece uh, that Catherine Johnson has done on Lyra McKee yeah. and uh, Margaret Ward's piece on um, Monica McWilliams and Francis Devine's piece on uh, May O'Brien. And uh, it's funny, I, I have a colleague from the NCIR who sent me an email this morning. He says, I'm just finished Left Lives Four. And he said the two essays that I enjoyed most was the essay on Podogany Murakou by Mags right. and the essay by Francis Devine on uh, May O'Brien, hmm. which is great to get that sort of feedback. Now, Mike Meacham, who wrote the book on um, William Walker, uh, and who's in his late 70s, living in uh, the east end of London, uh, he, he, he's going to send me a review of Left Lives Horror. Mike, Mike is a great scholar, ex-Chatham House, um, and uh, he's a great advisor in these matters. Mm. But um, he, he said to me, you know, he said, Jack, when you look at what you've done, he says, you have a book about a man from Belfast who was a poor law guardian. He says, you have the first volume of the history of the Fermanagh Trades Council. You've done a biography on Stephen McGonagall by his son, Owen. And then he says, you have the Walker Centenary Essays, uh, which, and uh, it was John Cunningham uh, in Galway, uh, in the Moore Institute in Galway, who said to a colleague sometime that uh, Umuskan Press is beginning to be noticed for the quality uh, of, of the people who are contributing. Mm. Uh, one gap that we've found, uh, myself and Francis, because we have this conversation uh, every so often, is it, it's quite difficult to get a handle on young people who are studying these topics and subjects in the um, universities and the mm. institutes of technology. Uh, and uh, we think that this may be partially linked to the sort of funding that they're getting in some of these institutes, that yeah. they want first dibs at their um, research. Yeah. But um, Omuskin is funding two young scholars to write an essay for the 50th anniversary uh, publication uh, for um, the Irish Labour History Society as hmm. a sort of a way to give something back to some of the people who contribute to Umuskan yeah. and to uh, the Irish Labour History Society. Right, that's great. It moves it that bit forward, in a sense. It does, yes. And, and hopefully, I mean, to say, we, we, the Irish Labour History Society had been having conversation with the student body uh, of uh, labor, labor studiers uh, in the universities. And uh, in 2019, we were to attend a conference in Belfield, which mysteriously was canceled. But we were, we were certainly prepared to go and contribute mm. uh, and speak to people 
Uh, mm. One of the issues in dealing with students, though, is the transient nature of student officers. Yeah. And uh, very often, what you really need to do is, is get a handle on some of the postgrads who are going to be around for two or three or four years, you know, yeah. uh, in the subject. Yeah. Like you're obviously keen to develop the links, but the links are difficult to sustain in that context because there's not the, the, I mean, people are coming and going. Yeah. 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 Well, I, I think if I think if we could actually get the links now, Kevin Murphy, the current secretary of the um, Irish Labour History Society, who, who, who's a younger man than I am, mm. uh, he, he was certainly, and he's, he, he works for the Kildare, Kildare County Council in the library section. He, he was anxious to um, to try and build a bridge there. So I, 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 I've said uh, to people that I'm quite happy to continue fostering that sort of work okay. uh, because there's no doubt once you build up some contacts, you, you it, it, even if they're gone, like uh, once they don't migrate from the current email address, yeah. you can always still send a message and say, can you tell me who's taken over from you or uh, yeah. who, who are the people who are going to be taken over from you at a given time you know if you were to say three to five years from now where would you see Omiskin press in five years time or what would, would you envisage as being i i would say probably somewhere between 35 and 40 uh books done right uh probably diversifying into a couple of areas that we don't currently cover. Mm. Uh, having maybe a different board structure uh, and, and more people contributing to the debate. Um, and hopefully having a wider reach uh, in terms of, I need to say, uh, the Irish Labour History Society was to have a uh, European conference in 2020 with mm. a lot of work done. Uh, right up to um, March when the uh, pandemic struck mm. and there were a lot of international people going to be involved in that um, I, 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 uh, and it's been decided now that we kicked it from 2020 into 2021 it was still lying around for 2022 and I discussed this with the current president of the society recently and we're talking about putting it back to 2023 now, so as it's part of the 50th anniversary celebrations. Yeah. And we would be working with the Women's History Association of Ireland and hopefully the, um, the Irish Association of Industrial Relations in relation to events that they're running. Uh, by the way, uh, you were saying something about uh, some, some of the, you mentioned the Plusky book. Mm. I'd like a different move to remember uh, the late Rodney Rice, who wrote a chapter in that book right, and who also chaired one of the sessions in Liberty Hall mm. when, when the Irish Labour History Society and um, SIP to Equality and the Women's History Association of Ireland and um, History Ireland um, had a very, very good weekend and laboured on the cusp of uh, 1916. And that was in the autumn of uh, 2015. Mm. And the, uh, the lead paper at that conference was given by the President of Ireland. So, um, I'd, but I'd like to remember Rodney Rice for, for the gentleman yeah. that he was and the great contributor 
Yeah. And of course, uh, the late Brendan Halligan, who's, who's a great friend to both the Irish Labour History Society and, and to Almost Compress. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think from hearing what you're saying, I know you're saying you think you were thinking of taking it, you know, calming it down a bit. But I have to say, I think the next five years are going to be very busy for you, to be honest. Well, it, it might be busier for Almost than for me, uh, oh. depending on depending on. Uh, what way but certainly uh, I, I have no doubt 2022 and 2023 yeah. uh, and up, up to say March 2024 when I'll be 70 uh, are going to be uh, very very busy and, and may bring us in new direction yeah listen just to say it's a fantastic project and thanks a million for talking about it with us and uh, thanks a million Jack really really appreciate it okay well the best love to both of you